The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Take a listen to the following sentence and have a guess out there as to when it may have been written. It says this, Few New Yorkers realize that all through the roar of the big city, there are constantly speeding messages between people separated by vast distances, and that over the housetops and even through the walls of buildings, and in the very air one breathes, are words written by electricity. And I suppose the only thing that gives it away is that this idea seems new. For anyone who would want to write this sentence today, it wouldn't seem new or weird at all, but we would still be protesting against it at some point. This comes from the New York Times in April of 1912. And uh, these words come from a 21-year-old, I believe, who was living in Vienna in the early 1900s. Listen to what he says. The nervousness had already come in my earliest childhood. I can remember that I often fainted, and that the whistle of a locomotive could shake me to my foundations. I was always excited and would explode at the slightest provocation. If I had to be in a crowd, I felt dizzy. I would involuntarily feel my heart and be convinced that I was suffering a heart attack. For years, I suffered from thinking that I would not be good enough at my job an idea that made my heart race every day. Now, these are just two passages, two voices, that I've collected together from uh, Philippe Blom's wonderful book, The Vertigo Years, Europe, 1900-1914. And that is what I want to spend the first half of tonight's episode on, just these voices of these people who lived during this time. Because you'll see in what kind of amazingly uncanny way that their concerns are not that much different than ours. How they are worried about the spread of new technology and its invasion into our lives and its possibly cheapening of everyday life. You'll hear about a deep paranoia over changes in previously stable gender roles. And there will be, on the other side, a great faith in progress and the harnessing and the collation of data, whether with science or culture, which leads either down the rabbit hole of racial theories, such as eugenics, or just in rigid artistic theories and groups. There's just this belief that we can fix everything. But behind that belief that you can fix everything, there is a feeling of utter powerlessness in the face of science and culture and rapid change. And alongside that, of course, 
there's the perpetual fear that everything is just going to hell, that civilization is collapsing. I read all of this now not to, uh, not to suggest that they were right or that our own anxieties today are correct. In a way, it's just to show that uh, other people have been here before and we are still here. So there must be something else going on. So take a listen to these voices of people living and creating and working and just observing between the years 1900 and 1914. The first comes from the poet and novelist and playwright Hugo von Hofsmannthal. And he says, no understanding is possible between people, no discussion, no connection between today and yesterday. Words are lying, feelings are lying, and our very consciousness is lying. And that could be on Twitter right now. Instead, it was from more than a hundred years ago. From the colonial secretary, uh, Joseph Chamberlain, uh, he still believes in the early 1900s. He believes it's strong enough to say, I believe that the British race is the greatest of the governing races that the world has ever seen. And uh, that mindset, even if those very words themselves have left the stage, that mindset is still with us. And really, the, uh, in the wonderful series of debates that I found between uh, very eloquent atheists and very eloquent but uh, still fairly strict believers of one organized religion or another, one of the great arguments that the atheists have, and that I really have no answer to, is that when you get down to the bottom of certain kinds of fundamentalist uh, religious belief, um, it is always, uh, by sheer coincidence, the believers would, would have you believe, um, it is always about them. Uh, God is always paying attention to them. Everything they do is important. Everything that their people have ever done is important. There's never a sense that uh, this huge revelation that has been granted to them and that is guiding their lives and their every steps obviously, because it is guiding their lives and their every steps. There's no sense that it isn't about them. It's not a, uh, it's always about them. It's always an eye pointing straight at them. And we can see what that did for hundreds and thousands of years. I believe that the British race, or whatever race you're thinking of throughout history, is the greatest of the governing races that the world has ever seen. On the other side, you have uh, the poet Rudyard Kipling, who at least had the perspective enough to say this, uh, far called, our navies melt away. On dune and headland sinks the fire. Lo, all our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tyre. That's very nice. All our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tyre. He is, uh, not willing, at least in this poem, I assume that Kipling is and others, to identify with the people of God as he would have seen them. This is nice too. This is the physicist Albert Michelson in 1899, which is only a few years before Einstein's theory of relativity. And this is what he says. 
the more important and fundamental laws and facts of physical science have all been discovered, and these are now so firmly established that the possibility of their ever being supplanted in consequence of new discoveries is exceedingly remote. And I read something like that not to make fun of physicist Albert Michelson or to uh, sort of smirk at him, smirk at uh, some guy living in 1899, but it is to wonder what it is in 2023. What, what is it that we have that much confidence in that in only a few years could very well easily be upended? The artist Mikhail Larionov had this to say, the genius of our day, trousers, jackets, shoes, tramways, buses, airplanes, railways, magnificent ships. We deny that individuality has any value in a work of art. And I was with him up until that point. Um, I just got done with that uh, episode on William Carlos Williams, who would have agreed, uh, no ideas but in things, the genius of our day should be. Trousers, jackets, shoes, tramways, buses, airplanes, railways, magnificent ships, things we can make, things that uh, are magnificent anecdotes just in themselves. There's nothing wrong with building a tall skyscraper and being proud that, wow, it's a tall skyscraper. But... On the other, on the flip side of that, to say that we deny individuality, that individuality has any value in a work of art, that seems to be where the mistake comes in, and that seems to be the difficulty, doesn't it? Uh, being able to hold to all the immense explosion of variety and detail and interest and uh, all the weird things, all the toys, all the gadgets all the stuff of our culture, to make poems of them, to make art of them, to uh, engage these things in eternal things as well, uh, but to also not lose sight of the individual who is living amongst all of these things as well. Because if you don't, you also go uh, in another direction, uh, not to trousers, jackets, shoes, tramways, and buses, but to a man named F.T. Marinetti in his Futurist Manifesto, I think from around 1910. I'd be, inter I'd be interested to know what Mr. Marinetti thought of this manifesto after the First World War. Uh, maybe he just doubled down on it. Uh, I'm not sure. But uh, Mr. Marinetti in the Futurist Manifesto says this, We will glorify war, the world's only hygiene, and militarism, patriotism, the destructive gesture of freedom bringers, beautiful ideas worth dying for, and scorn for woman. Not sure what scorn for woman has to do with anything, except that uh, in the old cliche sense, women would have nothing to do with overt militarism, patriotism, and the destructive gesture of the freedom bringers. Uh, this is around the time of uh, of women being run run down by uh, run down by police and uh, run down by horses at horse races to get the vote in England. So they had ideas worth dying for, but apparently not the ones that Mr. Marinetti would have uh, 
wanted them to die for. At some point, if you do, only focus on things like trousers, jackets, shoes, tramways, buses. That sounds like a, a poem in itself, um, a quite leaping poem, um, if I keep repeating it over and over again like this. Uh, at some point, you it would be hard to keep the sacredness or just the interest or just the wonder in these mass-produced things or the ability to get someone from here to there or that everyone can have shoes or jackets or trousers, etc., etc., magnificent ships. At some point, that is no longer a valuable thing. At some point, it just means everyone can do some version of this thing and nothing means anything. And the only thing that should mean anything after that is something obvious and violent uh, as war, something that risks death, uh, beautiful ideas worth dying for. And a Russian peasant mother said to her son, uh, when one is not a soldier, one is not a man. Well, there you go. Now, in a strange way, a sentence like that has the opposite effect, at least on me. When one is not a soldier, one is not a man. That is meant to be some, you know, prime directive, some confident statement from mother to son, from generation to generation, or perhaps a way of saying your father served and his father served and his father before him served. I don't hear confidence in that. What I hear is the immense fear of anyone whose child uh, goes off to war, anyone you would think of a poor peasant mother in Russia, perhaps whose only um, option for her child might be military service. Uh, I hear the fear in that woman's voice. I hear sort of the fear that lies behind a great deal of what we see in America, where on the one hand, we better damn well respect people who go into the military uh, voluntarily for whatever reason it is. We ought to do that. We ought to do the corny thing, although we should find an uncorny way to do it, of thanking them for their service. But on the other hand, always creeping in there, I think there is the realization that nobody cares. There is the realization that we actually don't care about the people who fight our wars. We don't actually care about them when they go. We don't actually care about them when they return, by and large, as a culture, as a society. Um, it's a certain class of men and women, usually, who go off and fight the wars, and it's a certain invisibility that they receive upon their return. And we've all heard the stories of mental illness and suicide among returning veterans. I think of the so I think of the expression of that, at least in America, perhaps it's different elsewhere in the world, where you have the bumper stickers, the window decals, the yard signs, the t-shirts, you have flags everywhere, you have the military being brought into issues that have nothing to do with the military and respect for it, like the thing a few years ago about uh, sports players kneeling during the national anthem that had nothing to do with the military at all or disrespecting it. I think that 
that is all very overblown and desperate. Uh, the people whose families include veterans seem to do these things, seem to have the bumper sticker, the t-shirt, the, uh, the yard sign, and everything else, not because they really want to clue everyone in on the fact that my family served, perhaps my son, my father, my nephew died, but uh, the overabundance of these things seems to actually show up the fear that in reality nobody outside of military families actually cares. And so when I read this mother, this Russian peasant mother, saying, when one is not a soldier, one is not a man, what I hear her actually saying is, uh, I don't think I'm ever going to see you again, so I better believe that what you're doing is the only manly thing you can possibly do. Maybe that's too harsh a view of things, but uh, it just seems that's what comes to mind when I read a thing like that. And as I wrote in another essay a long time ago, I felt this was apt here, so I'll just read this tiny paragraph. And in the case of war, it is perhaps just less emotionally destroying to imagine that our soldiers die and serve in a conflict which is inevitable and which is honorable and which is, we believe, meaningful, rather than to spend our lives enraged at our leaders or our generals for killing our friends for absolutely nothing. You know, some bald guys in a room with coats and decorations on their coats, just sending men to be killed, men and women to be killed, uh, often for nothing. Uh, it's easier to imagine that they did it for a reason than to remain enraged at ourselves or at our countries for making poison out of patriotism. So take that uh, however you will. But then we get to the feminist, an early feminist named Rosa Mayrider, and she says, modern man suffers from his intellectualism as from an illness. Is it not significant that men educated to be critical in all questions, remain uncritical for the longest when it comes to analyzing masculinity. And couldn't that be written in 2023? Here's a young Russian woman writing in her diary. This is what she says. I do not have the preparation, the zeal, or the perseverance for serious study. And now I am old, and now that I am old, it is too late. You do not begin studying at 25. I have neither the talent nor the calling for independent artistic creation. I am unmusical and understand nothing about it. As for painting, I have done no more than study a few years as a schoolgirl. And literature, I have never written a thing except this diary. So only civic activity remains. But what kind? fashionable philanthropy, which is held up to ridicule in all the satirical journals, establishing cheap dining rooms, that's like trying to patch up a piece of crumbling, rotting flesh, opening up literacy schools when it is universities that we need. I myself have jeered at these attempts, 
to empty the sea with a teaspoon. Or perhaps I should turn to revolution. But to do that, one has to believe. I have no faith, no direction, no spiritual energy. What is left for me to do? And there is so much in this young woman that you want to uh, talk to her about. Um, the thing that I uh, latched on to, I should say that I collected all of these quotations from Philippe Blom's book because I was writing a few years ago a novel that takes place in Vienna between the years around 1900 and 1938. And I wanted to see what was going on then. And the th part that I took from this is she says, I have never written a thing except this diary, but wouldn't most of you out there, and I certainly would, wouldn't you rather be hearing more from her diary than these other voices? I would love to hear the diary of a young Russian woman, 25 years old, living around the year 1905 or so. Um, so when she says she has a long way to go, she's not lying. She doesn't even think that her own diary is worth something. She's sort of like the person we see in America who is uh, immediately frightened by the snobs, by the art critics, by the social media mobs, by whoever it is, uh, so that she doesn't even know what to do. Should she? She's more worried about being taken down in the satirical journals than in uh, helping people in quote-unquote fashionable philanthropy. Uh, the Twitter and social media folks would jump on her for, quote, helping her, helping in the wrong way as they do. Uh, that is all we can do is criticize these days. Um, opening up literacy schools when it is universities that we need. Um, jeering at the attempts to empty the sea with a teaspoon. The sense that people had then and that we have now that... Uh, what we need, apparently, in the face of all the energy, all the information, all the voices, all the images, everything we hear, all the, all the stuff coming at us nonstop, every single day, the only conclusion that we can seem to have is that whatever we do, whatever we say, whatever we devote our time to has to be devoted to somehow uh, organizing all of this stuff. It has to be engaged and everything we do has to be engaged in something of world historical importance. And it seems almost to be a waste of time. It seems almost to be a joke to teach one person how to read or to serve one person a bowl of soup or whatever it is, one act of kindness, that seems to be the naive thing, that seems to be the brainwashed thing to do, that to only help one life uh, is enough. But I think that it actually really is enough. And I wonder if I went back and looked at the notes of where this came from, I wonder what happened to this young woman uh, in the rest of her life. At least she does say and I guess she would only say this in her diary, that even when it comes to revolution, I have no faith, no direction, no spiritual energy. At least she uh, admitted that much. Here we get back to uh, 
Rosa Myrater. And she says, uh, she was the one who said, um, isn't it strange that men who are educated to be critical are not critical of masculinity? And now she says this, even the work of a man has been replaced by the machine. The machine worker is a mere executor of a particular movement, which could just as well be done by women and children. The quote, strong fist, which under other conditions was crucial and formed the legal foundation of his dominion has become entirely superfluous. The office, the workplace, the professional practice, the atelier, they are all coffins of masculinity. But the monumental mausoleum is the city itself. The monumental mausoleum is the city itself. All influences of city life are conspiring to increase the sickness most opposed to the character of masculinity, which is nervous exhaustion. That goes back to uh, the quote I read from earlier, the 25-year-old who has what they termed back then nervous exhaustion. Um, the person who, who has a panic attack just hearing a train whistle uh, and all the rest of it. And here, where is this? Yeah, here's the, here are the words of a metal worker. He says, as my work was done with machines, with the rollers used in the ovens, and which now employ 80 to 100 people, well, you can see, if you work for 42 years in this roaring noise, how that can wreck an old man's nerves. I sweat all day. I feel afraid. I often cry like a young child. I cannot sleep at night. Several other workers have the same disease. One was pushed so far that he slit his throat. And if we're talking 1900, 1910 or so, this person would have started working in places like this in the 1860s or 1870s, right? So there we are. Here is the novelist and naval officer, Pierre Loti, and he says, having been knocked off balance by our knowledge, today we know that underneath us there is nothing but emptiness, an emptiness that falls vertiginously, the emptiness into which everything is falling without hope. And at certain hours one grows heavy with the thought. It becomes an anguish to realize that never, never, we or our ashes, our last dust, never will we be able to repose in peace on something stable, because stability no longer exists, and we are condemned, after life as during it, to career around in that dark void. We have no point of reference which would not be caught up in the vertigo of movement, and this frightening speed can only ever be evaluated relative to other moving things, to other poor little things, which are also falling, which are also falling. The thing that strikes me there is the, on the one hand, it's hard to believe that this was the first time, and I guess the point of this episode is that it isn't, it's hard to, to believe that this was the first time anyone thought this. 
Um, it's hard to believe that someone, this was the first time someone woke up and realized that the way things are organized in society, uh, shit doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean what we thought it meant when we were children. Um, I mean, is, is this point of view that's being put across here and which sounds very 2023 as well, did that really only happen um, after the Industrial Revolution began or after people began working in cities and factories more than they were working in nature and on farms and things like that? I, it's hard to believe that that's true. The only thing that seems actually new about it and that is still new to us, still new a hundred years later, is the speed with which all of this is being apprehended. Um, it seems that as soon as we developed a way of writing these things down, I think of the wisdom literature out of Mesopotamia and Egypt, and of course in the Hebrew Bible, um, as soon as we are able to put these thoughts into eloquent speech, or in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Um, we've had the same idea, the same apprehension that the business and culture world that we've set up just doesn't really work the way we perhaps want it to. But the difference with the last hundred years is just how quickly, how quickly things change and how quickly Everything is just coming right at us without end. And Virginia Woolf, this is, uh, I believe, part of that famous page of hers that she has where she says that, uh, that uh, human life or human history changed somewhere in 1911, whatever that, whatever that good quote is. Uh, but she says, all human relations have shifted. Those between masters and servants, husbands and wives, parents and children. And when human relations change, there is at the same time a change in religion, conduct, politics, and literature. And this is one of my favorite things. Um, Philippe Blom is good at getting the funny stuff too. Uh, there was a man mentioned in his book who was famously virile, a uh, ladies' man. His name was Jean Monnet Soli. And uh, his quote is, up until the age of 60, I thought it was a bone. So, so there we are. Uh, good to follow that with a priest, uh, a French priest, Abbe Mungier. And this is what the, the Abbe has to say. Uh, One is no longer at home with oneself today. It is only going to get worse. X-rays will penetrate you. Kodaks will photograph your passing. Phonographs will engrave your voices. Aeroplanes will threaten us from on high. Again, 1910 or so. One is no longer at home with oneself today. But again, as I just said, is, it, is that true? Did, did no one else before him ever sit back? Uh, one is no longer at home with oneself today. Is Dostoevsky's underground man? Isn't that what he's talking about? Um, or Raskolnikov? Um, but it's different. These details, it's true, are different. One is no longer at home with oneself today. 
It is only going to get worse. X-rays will penetrate you. Kodaks will photograph your passing. Phonographs will engrave your voices. Aeroplanes will threaten us from on high. I remember a very mundane version of that, talking about phonographs will, en will engrave your voices um, back in maybe 2007 or 8, I think. It was when my wife and I were living in Brooklyn, and it was back when I had Gmail. And I realized, I think we both realized at about the same time, that uh, without our realizing it, we certainly hadn't set it up this way. Um, through our Google accounts, it had, uh, there was basically a record of everything that we had done online um, for the past, I guess, since 2005 or 2006. So for a good three, four, or five years, everything was there. And I, mean, I think you could even look at it on a calendar just to find out what we had searched for. It was something that, was, that wasn't kept track of on a browser's history, but was tied to your actual account with Google. I could be getting those details wrong. But there was the option, once we discovered this, to just delete all of it. And I ended up doing that, even though uh, you think of biographers these days. Um, I just got done listening to a biography of Charles Dickens, and it was by accident, by mistake, that we have a, a diary, um, not, not, a, not his journal, but a his schedule for three or four months, like in the 1860s or something, and how, uh, where we don't have that for the rest of his life or any other period in his life, and how gleeful biographers pounce on those details because they don't exist anywhere else. And I was, I was hesitant to delete all of that, but I did because it just doesn't seem right to be able to have that, especially if I'm never going to look at it myself. Um, here's a man named Louis Hogmar who was talking about another new medium, the cinema. And he says this, uh, through it, through the cinema, the charmed masses will learn not to think anymore, to resist all desire to reason and to construct, which will atrophy little by little. They will know only how to open their large and empty eyes, only to look, look, look. Will cinematography comprise, perhaps, the elegant solution to the social question if the modern cry is formulated bread and cinemas? And we shall progressively draw near to those menacing days when universal illusion in universal mummery will reign the universal illusion in universal mummery will reign. And I mention that too, not to say that this guy was right a hundred years ago. I don't really think that he was. On the one hand, sure, you can look at what's on TV. Uh, you can look at most of the movies that are given wide release. You can look at the old anecdotes of the BBC, uh, which 
began sort of with a high ideal of being primarily an educational uh, service. Uh, they got going with color uh, photography, uh, color television, primarily to document, you know, nature documentaries and historical documentaries to get those things down. Uh, the Ascent of Man and Civilization, Kenneth Clark, Civilization. Um, and you can see what's happened with all of that. And that's true. But on the other hand, again, uh, has there never been, I mean, uh, we're, we're talking about bread and circuses, right? And now bread and cinemas. There was a reason back in ancient Rome that the idea was bread and uh, circuses rather than bread and cinemas. There was the idea that even back then, people look at dumb things. People, the mass of people are distracted by stupid things. These things have always been with us. Um, but at the same time, there has been great achievements in film and television and all of that as well. And on the other hand, as well, there's just no getting away from it. And for many lonely people out there, or just people who can't sleep. Um, I don't know, it can be a great companion, can't it? Um, the ease with which we are able to just find just about anything if we need to. Um, it's not as easy as saying uh, they will only know how to open their large and empty eyes and only look, look, look. And and here's a good corrective here. Here, this is a, this is a historian who is talking about how everything is now mass produced. There's a great uh, cynicism, a great criticism about how everything is being mass produced. If everything's being mass produced, just like we think of it today, uh, none of these things are being made by hand carefully the way things used to be, quote unquote, all of that. But this historian says something else. Uh, living between the years 1900 and 1914. He says, the character of the new luxury is to be banal, but let us not complain too much, if you please, because before there was nothing banal, but there was misery. Let us not fall into this childish, but nevertheless common contradiction, which consists of welcoming the development of industry while deploring the results of industrialism. Um, in other words, it seems undeniable that on some level, even if industrialization created great uh, amounts of uh, suffering and irrevocable change, on the other hand, uh, mass production of many things, of many daily things that we think of as necessary now, um, only became possible because of industrialization. And that in some ways, it did make the run-of-the-mill person's life a little bit better. And there's something to be said for that, too. Now we have the American novelist Jack London writing about the poor that he went to live among in the city of London itself, in, uh, in Whitechapel. He says, The unfit and the unneeded, the miserable and the despised and the forgotten, dying in the social shambles, the progeny of prostitution, of the prostitution of men and women and children, 
of flesh and blood and sparkle and spirit, in brief, the prostitution of labor. If this is the best that civilization can do for the human, then give us a howling and naked savagery. Far better to be a people of the wilderness and desert, of the cave and the squatting place, than to be a people of the machine and the abyss. And that is a very powerful book if you go looking for Jack London's memoir of living in Whitechapel for a time. Here's a man named Francis Galton. Inevitably here we come to the fad of the early 20th century, uh, eugenics. Um, he is saying what nature does blindly, slowly, and ruthlessly, mankind may do providentially, quickly, and kindly. That seemed to be the civilizing thing when you're talking about uh, something like eugenics, is that it is at least done kindly now, isn't it? This is Virginia Woolf in a, a very unfortunate passage to have survived. I believe this is from her diaries. She says, On the towpath, we met and had to pass a long line of imbeciles. The first was a very tall young man, just queer enough to look at twice, but no more. The second shuffled and looked aside. And then one realized that everyone in that long line was a miserable, ineffective, shuffling, idiotic creature, with no forehead or no chin, and an imbecile grin or a wild, suspicious stare. It was perfectly horrible. They should certainly be killed. They should certainly be killed, says Virginia Woolf. Maybe she wouldn't have quite put it that way um, if she had to say any of that publicly. You wonder how much of that uh, is just uh, because she is writing it in her diary. But the point of view is, is there. It's all over the place. George Bernard Shaw says, There is now no reasonable excuse for refusing to face the fact that nothing but a eugenic religion can save our civilization from the fate that has overtaken all previous civilizations. At least he admits that uh, it should have the quality uh, of a religion, um, even though he also thinks it is reasonable. Um, and here is a man named Ernst uh, Haeckel, and he says, the higher culture, which we are only beginning to construct, will always have to keep in mind the task of creating a happy, i.e. contented existence. Many barbarous customs and old habits, which are thought indispensable, will vanish. War, duels, forced adhesion to churches. The main interest of the state will no longer be the creation of the strongest possible military force, but rather the most perfect education of its youth, based on the most extensive care of the arts and sciences. The perfection of technology, with its inventions in physics and chemistry, will satisfy the needs of all. That's right, the needs of all. Artificial synthesis will deliver foods rich in proteins and a rational form of marriage will create happy families. Well, uh, we can all wait for that one, can't we? Um, this gets back to the thing I mentioned about the atheist uh, criticizing the fundamentalist believer. At some point, um, if you want to look for bad ideas, you look for the ideas that uh, 
that make it all about the believer. And right away from, from Mr. Haeckel, uh, he believes that the higher culture is, isn't in the past and isn't in the future, but is being constructed right now. He, be, he probably believes he was right in the middle of constructing that. Um, we have the idea, we had the idea uh, earlier on with the Futurist Manifesto that you should glorify war. And very often, uh, if you get to people who are critical of what civilization does, uh, they are critical of both our violent side, our desire for war, and our attachment to religion, to churches, and all the rest. Um, and for Mr. Haeckel, uh, eventually there will be no need for either. There will be no war, no religion. This is, I suppose, a early 1900s version of John Lennon's Imagine, um, which is its own problem, you would say. Beautiful song, though it is. Um, you can see all of it right here. Uh, if we just get the technology right, um, if we just make the food, you know, if we, if we basically can feed everybody, um, if we can just educate everybody, everything will just turn out fine. We can, we can do this, basically. And again, I, I say this, even if it sounds like I'm being a bit sarcastic with Mr. Hagel, I say this not to mock him or not to suggest that people in 2023 are any better. I wonder what the things we are doing now that a podcast a hundred years from now will look back on and say, look at this. What can we learn from this? Can you believe people actually believed this? It's like the, if you want to talk about bumper stickers, uh, the ones that are always talking about, uh, uh, believing in peace and not war. Well, that's a nice idea, but how do you actually do that? Here is Ernst Haeckel, and here he, here he comes. He turns, uh, he turns another face, or maybe he considered this to be part and parcel of the same one. He says, rationally speaking, the killing of a crippled newborn child cannot be subsumed under the notion of murder, as our modern law books would have it. Instead, we must see and approve of it as a sensible measure, both for those concerned and for all society. And you can see what a, what a prophecy that is for the rest of the 20th century. If you believe that you have reason on your side, and if you believe that reason and science and technology uh, can fix everything, and if you believe that uh, barbaric things or irrational things like war or religion, or probably uh, if you took him to uh, Mr. Haeckel to his logical conclusion, you think of Plato's Republic here. Um, if you think other irrational things like the arts uh, will eventually be abolished because we will be so reasonable and enlightened then anything is allowed, really, to reach that end. If you see far in the distance, you believe that you are starved, that you and your family who are traveling with you are starving and beset, and the only thing left for you to do is to reach a certain point on the horizon, 
And if you believe that you have found that point on the horizon, then there is nothing that you will do to not get there. Um, if you've convinced yourself that uh, you're doing this not just for your family, but for your entire culture, for your entire country, for your entire civilization, if you believe that all of history has led up to decisions like these and achievements and realizations like these, you can imagine the heft and the weight of uh, how powerful someone like Ernst Haeckel's uh, certainty must have been, then of course, sure, kill off a bunch of crippled kids. Why not? What's the big deal? Um, it's, it's, it is allowable. It is necessary if you believe that this uh, kind of perfection can be achieved. It's amazing what you will allow yourself to believe, what you will allow yourself to do, what you will allow others to do, I suppose, um, in your name. So there we have it. Uh, and then a nice thing, this is especially nice having a, having a daughter in kindergarten and hearing uh, the words of Moritz Schreber on extreme forms of dis disciplinary education. And Mr. Schreber says, the idea should never cross the child's mind that his will might prevail. Do you want to you want to knock some uh, knock some knowledge into a kid? Uh, the idea should never cross the child's mind that his will might prevail. And where are we here? And this is a note that was found in the pocket of a French anarchist who I believe committed suicide. And it says this. You can imagine after everything we have heard, all of the different um, expressions of how meaningless things appear now with the with the way things are, uh, how meaningless all of it is, how it doesn't add up to anything, how it's just an onrush of stuff coming at you, how it's very clear that there's a certain class of people up here who will always have the power, always have the money, always have the influence always be able to get their kids and their family and everybody else to stay in that area while everyone else beneath them, hardly any of them ever, are able to do the equivalent of standing up on their feet and even trying to change the way things are. In the midst of all of that, it should come as no surprise that this was a note found in the pocket of a French anarchist who says, our women and our children are crammed together in slums while thousands of big houses stay empty. We are building palaces and we live in hovels. Worker, develop your life, your intelligence, your strength. You are a sheep. The cops are dogs and the bourgeois are the shepherds. Your blood pays for the luxuries of the rich. Our enemy is our master. Long live anarchy. And along those same lines, here is, here are the words of someone named Marius Jacob, who says, life is nothing but theft and massacre. That's a way to begin. Life is nothing but theft and massacre. From top to bottom of the social scale, everything is but dastardly on one side, 
and idiocy on the other. How can you expect that, convinced of these truths, I could have respected such a state of things? A liquor seller and the boss of a brothel enrich themselves, while a man of genius dies in poverty. The baker who bakes bread doesn't get any. The shoemaker who makes thousands of shoes shows his toes. The weaver who makes stocks of clothing doesn't have any to cover himself with. The bricklayer who builds castles and palaces wants for air in a filthy hovel. Those who produce everything have nothing, and those who produce nothing have everything. The right to live isn't begged for, it is taken. And that reminds me of a passage in Barbara Ehrenreich's book from 1996 or so called Nickel and Dime, where she documents these women who are working at Walmart and they they can't even afford the um, they can't even afford the clothes that are on sale there even I th even I think the toss-offs they're not able to afford for themselves um, and that is right along those lines uh, here is the words I think to close out tonight of Fernand Legere on how life was quote more fragmented and faster moving than in previous periods. A modern man registers a hundred times more sensory impressions than an 18th century artist. And it doesn't look like I'm going to get to the second half of this episode as I imagined that I would. I'll have to save the subject of that for later. But to repeat Mr. Legere, living at this time, 1900 and 1914, life was more fragmented and faster moving than in previous periods. A modern man registers a hundred times more sensory impressions than an 18th century artist. And if that was true around 1910 or so, um, imagine how huge that is now and what does it mean with how we live? I often thought that uh, back when I still drove a car to work, that uh, being stuck in a traffic jam, heading into a relatively large uh, downtown area in Pittsburgh, certainly not Manhattan, but certainly not small town either, um, surrounded by hundreds of people, hundreds of faces, and being passed by hundreds of people and hundreds of faces. Uh, how long would it take for me to just see or come into contact with or pass by the same amount of people that someone 5,000 years ago would have encountered in their entire life? So there is something to what has happened in the last hundred years. And what I wanted to do with 2023 to get us started is to just to give a sense uh, of how close we are to the people who lived back in the time that just looks like a black and white photo. We're very close to them. We have uh, every excuse to have great sympathy and empathy with them. 
and to learn from them, just in the same way, I hope, that someone on the verge of the year 2123 might look back on a few words that emerge into the air in this coming year um, with the same kind of sympathy, the same kind of empathy, same kind of curiosity to wonder, they thought the same thing then as I do now, and what does that mean, and what can I learn from it, and what can I do with that to make my life better, to make the lives of others better, or even better than that, actually. I've been stuck on this for the past few weeks or so, trying to write a poem about Vincent van Gogh. He says somewhere in his letters, uh, we, we were not put here to be happy, to be content in some conventional way. Uh, we were put here to be honest. So maybe, I guess we don't want to give up on happiness completely, or contentment, or just some sense of rest or joy of just sitting back and taking a breath every now and then. But still, uh, maybe that person in the, in the future could also say, what is this? How can this make us more honest as well as happy? How can this make us better people and maybe a little happier and certainly more honest? So let's go forward with that. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.